That was nine weeks at number one on the podcast charts because of you cunts. And that song was written by, well it was a collaborative piece. That song was written by Christy Moore, Billy Corgan from the band The Smashing Pumpkins and Japanese pianist Ryuchi Sakamoto. All three of which are very big fans of this podcast. And they got together during the week, despite different time zones. And they got together on on a Skype meet-up. And together, they wrote that song. And they sent the sheet music to me, via Carrier Pigeon. And I merely recorded it. And they wrote that song, for ye cunts. Because we are nine weeks at number one on the podcast charts. Because you've been togging out. You've been liking and subscribing and leaving lovely, beautiful reviews on the podcast. And for this I am grateful. It keeps this alive. It allows for your weekly podcast hug. Last week, we had a very gentle meander down memory lane. I spoke about the author Yorty Ahern two times in a row and how Yorty inspired me to create a mulled cocktail in his name and this mulled cocktail it's not quite mulled wine because mulled wine is for silly boys because like I said the alcohol is gone so this Yorty Ahern mulled drink is about having a mulled experience while also getting that lovely that lovely chemical slap from alcohol. And lots of you have been making your dear and sending me photographs of your attempts, your efforts on Twitter and it's been very amusing. Fair play to you. And there's one uh, business in Limerick, an Italian restaurant called La Cucina Centro and I know the manager Craig, he's a sound by and he's actually making your dear and giving it to the patrons of this restaurant in Henry Street in Limerick. So fair fox. I'll be calling in during the week for my Yorty Ahern mull drink. For some reason, I've started off the podcast this week with a very odd rhythm where there's a strange pausing between my words and I don't know why. Maybe it's because at the start of the podcast there was a song and I'm trying to keep in beat with that rhythm. Maybe I have an Alsatian in the room and he barks between my sentences and I've merely edited out his barks because they are too offensive for your ears. So I'm going to try and uh, get back to a more relaxed flow now in how I talk. This week's podcast... This week's podcast is going to be about music, I think. I'm going to make it about uh, about tunes, because you know how much I love music. You know, music to me is like having my soul wanked by God. My first ever musical purchase was about at the age of three or four. My first independent purchase. I received five pounds from my uncle Noel. Noel is from Tipperary. And he greets people by stepping on their toe, kneeing them in the bollocks and giving them a headbutt at the same time. In unison, that's what he does. That's what Tipperary people do. But Noel gave me five pounds, which was very generous when I was a child. And... I was born into a house of tunes and there was different music playing there was a bit of David Bowie a bit of Madonna 
Bob Dylan that type of crack. But at a very, very young age, a toddler, I took a shine to the music of T-Rex, Mark Boland. I don't know why. Well, because he's an unbelievable songwriter. The man's capacity for melody was unbelievable. And also, I had a bit of a dinosaur obsession, so it was quite convenient that my favourite singer was in a band called T-Rex. I remember marvelling at the synchronicity of that. Around the same age that I became aware of my own reflection in the mirror. So that's how young I was. So I took Noel's Fiverr to Todd's, which was a place in O'Connell Street in Limerick. One of my brothers took me. And I bought the greatest hits of T-Rex. And fuck me did I play that non-stop. Children of the Revolution, Ride a White Swan. Non-stop, I fucking wore it out. In fact, on my first day of school, I got, I suppose what you'd call an anxiety attack. I couldn't fucking stand school on my first day. So the teacher had to play my Mark Boland CD in the class so that I would stop crying. And I cried so much that I vomited on a, on a, a young man called Raymond's leg. Raymond is now a guard. But my love of music grew until I got to about about eight or nine. And the older boys, the older boys out on the road in Limerick, the Bowleys, they were listening to a mixture of Guns N' Roses and The Prodigy. And when I heard The Prodigy for the first time, like I'd never had music like that in the house because... It was mostly rock music and folk in my house. There was no electronic shit. When I heard the fucking prodigy, my head exploded, my world exploded. I'd, I'd never heard anything as as violent and as frantic in my life, as electronic, as industrial. So I went out and I bought music for the Jilted Generation. Unbelievable album, start to finish, by the prodigy. Incredible, unparalleled to this day. And I had a shitty Casio keyboard. And at about 10 years of age, I knew I knew I had to start making tunes. I knew I had to start... I, I, I was interested not just in listening to music, but I was interested in how music was constructed, how music was made. And I would get my Casio keyboard and play the demo sounds and the demo beats and the drums and the synth noises. And using a cassette recorder would try my very best to record certain town sounds and to overdub them and create tunes and uh, it was very difficult and Jesus Christ I wish I'd I'd been born 10 years later so that computers were a thing and that uh, music software that you could get on computers were a thing because I was wasting my time for fucking years trying to make rave, rave tunes out of a Casio and a cassette player but you will hear the fruits of that labour in uh, our song Dad's Best Friend I made the music for Dad's Best Friend in jeez I'd say nearly only a day or two days but I didn't really it took me several several years since I was a child fucking around with that Casio to get that violent prodigy hardcore fucking rave metal sound into a track and that's what that's what dad's best friend is that's the payoff of all those years trying to sound like Liam Howard the prodigy is dad's best friend and fuck it they put it into train spotting they put that song in the train spotting soundtrack train spotting 2 and guess who else was on that album the fucking prodigy and holy fuck did I want to go back and give 10 year old me a hug Jesus Christ but we'd all kind of listen to rave you know there was Prodigy Orbital Fourth Dimension bands like that and we'd, we'd wear baggy jeans such brands as Joe Bloggs and Petro Motion and when you got to about 11 and you were looking at the older boys and they were smoking fags and drinking cider 
the best boys were the ones who could rave dance. And rave dancing was just weird. It was just strange. Because like there'd be these, there'd be these lads going around. They were they were they were they were teenagers, like they were older than us. But they'd be hard fuckers, like really fucking hard bastards. You wouldn't look at them sideways and they'd be scrapping and fighting the whole time. Except when they rave danced. You had these lads who were very very reserved and very masculine and very macho. But then as soon as someone pressed play on the boombox, they would do this bizarre rhythmic shuffling with their feet, which was a thrill to watch. And this was rave dancing. This is what this was. And it was quite effeminate, you know, and it was very expressive to see these hard bastards who five minutes ago just threw a glass Lucozade bottle at a bus and now they're all rave dancing and smoking fags and taking turns in the middle of the circle to see who can do the best rave dance. And they had big baggy jeans and baggy hoodies and their feet flying a million miles an hour shuffling around on the ground. And I just always thought it was bizarre. And I used to practice rave dancing in my bedroom then in my socks. And uh, I used to just wonder where the fuck does that come from? Where did that come from in Limerick? How did all the boys in Limerick decide we're going to be hard cunts except when rave tunes are playing and then we're all going to gather around in a circle and shuffle our feet as fast as possible? And I grew up and it left me. Until on YouTube, a couple of years ago, I saw um, what's called Northern Soul Dancing. And it was... It was from like Manchester and Sheffield in the, in the 1970s and it was these lads with baggy flares and they were they were dancing in 1972 the style of dancing shuffle dancing that I had seen in Limerick in the early 90s the rave dancing and I was going How, what the fuck's going on here that this English dancing from 1972 ended up in Limerick in like 1995 1996 what what the fuck is this about so I got my mind going mad because that's the type of uh, synchronistic and correlative. Cor- cor- that's not a word. That's the type of correlation that excites my mind and keeps me awake at night. So then, of course, I started reading about Northern Soul and listening to Northern Soul music. And it brought me down a very, a very oily and long wormhole, which I will now indulge you in. Northern Soul, the phrase, refers to both a type of music and an entire culture. The northern part is it's from the north of England, right? Now, I'm not great on my English geography because you're not great on Irish geography, lads. But the north is like, I don't know, Manchester, Liverpool... Around that, that area above London and below Scotland, on the left-hand side, usually, I think. So this this thing happened in the north of England, it's really strange, where very, very obscure soul music from Detroit and Chicago became massively, massively popular in the late 60s and early 70s. Like, it, it, it's, it was so, it's so bizarre... I just had to learn about it and, and listen to it. To give an idea of what Northern Soul sounds like, because I can't really, I can't play any examples on this podcast, unfortunately, because um, because it's iTunes. If I play music that isn't mine, it'll get flagged and get taken down. So, fuck it, a couple of weeks ago, we managed to talk about Caravaggio without any visuals, so we're going to talk soul music without any music. And if you want, you can go and listen on YouTube as well. Pause the podcast. So the type of soul music I'm thinking of, you want to be thinking of uh, Diana Ross and the Supremes. Songs like Baby Love, right? That's the Motown sound. That comes from Detroit. Motown means motor town, the motor city. Key to the Motown sound, right? When you listen to the likes of, like I said, the Supremes. Listen to Martha Reeves and the Vandellas. You hear a very mechanical rhythm. This music is from the 
early to mid-sixties, but you hear a very mechanical rhythm. You hear the sound of a tambourine on the beat. And to understand that music from a kind of a sociocultural point of view, you have to look at what Detroit was. Detroit was a heavily industrial city, post-World War II industry, mainly making cars, the motor city. And a huge amount of uh, black Americans left the southern states of America for the larger industrial cities for a couple of reasons. When uh, black slaves became free in the southern states, free as in inverted commas there, the white ruling class introduced a series of laws called the Jim Crow laws and the segregation period was introduced. I spoke about the Jim Crow laws a couple of podcast back they were based on the penal laws that were brought against the Catholic Irish in the 1800s so it wasn't very pleasant being a black person in the southern states of America during segregation because the vast majority of your rights were taken away such as education and land ownership and such so quite a lot of black people said fuck this I'm heading up north. There's jobs in Chicago. There's jobs in Detroit. I'm going there. Now, African-American culture, music is a huge part of it. So if you listen to the blues music and soul music and gospel music of before the 1950s, you'll notice that quite quite a lot of it is acoustic. The likes of uh, Sun House and Robert Johnson. It's just acoustic guitar blues. So what happened is that when the southern black population moved up north to the factories, um, they had disposable income for the first time ever because they were working in factories getting jobs. So they started to play in clubs. Instead of, uh, whereas in Mississippi, you're playing to about seven people in a tiny little box. You get to Chicago, you're playing to a hundred people. So the music became electrified. Electric guitars became a thing because they're louder. But what also happened, now that's the blues, but we'll say the gospel singers, the church goers of Mississippi, when they got to Detroit, that's when soul music became a thing. And soul music, essentially, it's, it takes the, the gospel tones and the gospel melodies of church music, but when brought into the poor slums of Detroit and Chicago, the themes of the lyrics stop being about God and they start to become about relationships and sex. So the Motown sound, the sound of Diana Ross and the Supremes, the sound of Martha Reeves and the Vandellas, it's very mechanised. Listen to that tambourine. It sounds like machinery. It sounds like the people that were, the black people that were working in the factories every day clink, clank, clonk in this perfect mechanic rhythm that this got mixed in with the soul and gospel tones to create the Motown sound this very mechanised dance sound where the focus is on not necessarily the kick drum but on the snare beat with that tambourine but the thing about the Motown sound is that Motown uh, it was run by a fella called I believe it's Berry Gordy who was a a very, very clever businessman. And Motown wanted domination of the charts in America, which meant appealing to white people. So Motown music is actually quite mainstream. I'm not knocking it. Some of the best pop songs ever fucking written were by Holland Dozy or Holland for the Supremes and for Martha Reeves and the Vandellas and a few others. Fucking Stevie Wonder came out of Motown as well. But Motown was mainstream. It was softer to appeal to a a white audience but then you had other artists from much more kind of obscure labels and this type of soul music was only really it it was artists black artists trying to sound like Motown but the only people that liked it were other black people and in America there wasn't a lot of money in that so this was essentially failed music it was it was it was these failed soul tracks that for some 
bizarre, inexplicable reason, became very popular in the north of England in the mid-60s and early 70s, sometime after when they were released in Detroit and Chicago. And I would rack my fucking brains day in and night going, why the fuck, how did this happen? Why? Someone give me a reason. What kind of happened? I'll get to that in a minute. The north of England, similarly, was very, very industrial, like Detroit and like Chicago. You had a huge working class population, working class whites, and their jobs were basically work in the steel mill, work in the coal mine. Your jobs are mechanised, you're surrounded by coal, you're surrounded by dirt, by noise, you're surrounded by machines. So that was my first inclination as to why the people of the north of England were uniquely found a a liking in this music that really shouldn't appeal to them at all. This was a music made for a black population in Detroit and Chicago, yet it is making sense to somebody from Manchester, from the slums of Manchester. I do believe that it is the, the commonality of this music, the heart of it coming from mechanics and coming from industry, that that was the common theme that made the northerners fall in love with this music. But then another thing I looked at. So, first off, the, the phrase Northern Soul was coined by uh, a record shop owner in London. Whenever he, he coined this phrase because on Sundays when there was a match on in London and some of the teams, the football teams, were down from the north of England, he just noticed that the northerners from like Manchester or Newcastle were looking for very, very strange uh, Motown records or very strange and rare records from Detroit and Chicago. He couldn't understand it, so he just called it Northern Soul. The thing is, with these cities in the north of England, there was a huge amount of coal production. This is before Maggie Thatcher shut down the northern coal mines to have a more London-centric economy. But there was massive, massive production of coal. Now, over in Detroit and Chicago, they needed coal for their fucking factories to work. So the north of England, who had an excess of coal, started to export coal by the shipload to Chicago and to Detroit. They'd load up the ship at the docks in Newcastle or wherever. The ship would leave for America and then it would unload all its coal in Detroit or Chicago. When you unload a ship that is has been full for all its journey, that ship needs a needs a ballast. It needs to be weighted down on the way back because you went over with a certain amount of coal. You can't go back with that coal gone or the ship will sink. So they needed to fill it with, with an equivalent amount of weight. Well, it turns out in Chicago and in Detroit, so many soul records were being made that they were essentially rubbish. And the records that didn't sell, the records that were considered failures, were packed up into boxes. And on the docks of Detroit, when the ships were going, coal ships were going back to the north of England, they were filled with fucking boxes and boxes of failed vinyl records to weigh the ship down to give it balance. So then the ship would arrive back to the north of England. The records would be taken out and just simply thrown as rubbish on the docks of Manchester or the docks of Liverpool. This would have been the early 60s. At that time, cafe culture and beatnik shit was quite popular. So enterprising owners of coffee shops in northern English towns, they had jukeboxes because kids loved jukeboxes. But buying records was expensive if you owned a cafe. So a lot of the owners would go down to the docks and find these boxes of rubbish records take out the vinyls and fuck them into the jukeboxes. So the kids of Northern England in the poorer parts would go to their local cafe. They'd be looking for Elvis. They don't have Elvis. But they do have 
Gloria Jones or Jackie Wilson who were fucking essentially failures. They were failed artists. They were nobodies. And the kids of Newcastle and Liverpool in the late 60s and early 70s started to hear very, very obscure and weird soul music and got a taste for it. So eventually what started to happen is these kids from the north of England would go to their local youth centres and someone would throw on a Northern Soul record. Now if you're wondering what Northern Soul looks like or or sorry, sounds like and you want to get a flavour for it, just pause the podcast, go onto YouTube and find Gloria Jones' 1965 version of Tainted Love which is uh, a song you'll know well. But this was a failed song. It was supposed to be nothing. So anyway, these Northern English kids started to listen to these tunes. And the thing with Northern Soul and what separates it from Motown, it was dance music. It was a, a couple of BPM faster than Motown tunes because it was for dance halls in America. So when you heard this, this, this these tunes, you had to start dancing which led to a very bizarre style of Northern Soul dance in the likes of Manchester and Wigan, where it's it's kind of like almost breakdancing before breakdancing. Very quick shuffling of feet, spinning and high kicks. Some say that the Northern Soul dancing actually comes from Bruce Lee's Kung Fu films that would have been in the cinema at the time. The same boys and girls who started Northern Soul would also have been in the cinema looking at Bruce Lee so they would do Bruce Lee's impressive kicks and spins and incorporate this into a dance while dancing to Detroit and Chicago soul music so eventually they'd all get together and to listen to this music they would have what's known as an all nighter and this is 1972 now no fucking, no rave music, no nothing. So all the Northern Soul kids would go to a giant dance hall, of which, of course, didn't have a liquor license, so there was no drink being served. And they'd start to dance all night to Northern Soul records. And dance was the unifying theme. The spins and the shuffles and the kicks. And they'd wear very baggy flares to allow the dancing to happen. And, of course, they took an awful lot of drugs. In particular, there was a drug called Bronchi Packs which was an over-the-counter cough suppressant, uh, the main ingredient of which is ephedrine. You may know ephedrine as pseudoephedrine. It's in Sudafed. Crystal meth is made from ephedrine and pseudoephedrine. So all these kids were taking speed, essentially. That's what it is. It was poor man's speed. And staying up all night, dancing like lunatics to Northern Soul. It also started kind of a, a DJ culture thing. The whole point in Northern Soul is that the tunes that you were playing or the tunes you were listening to, they were rare as fuck. They couldn't be in the charts. And this kind of started an early DJ culture, white label. White label is when a DJ is playing a tune, but they cover the label on the record because they don't want anyone knowing the name of that tune so they can have it. Real pre-internet shit, you know. This couldn't happen nowadays because you'd have the internet, everyone would have a Northern Soul playlist. Of, of which I'm sure they exist. So you had this mad dancing to drugs, staying up all night. And then you had this DJ culture and record record swapping in the early 70s. And then it kind of fell out of popularity. Northern Soul fell out of popularity. Until kind of another 10, 15 years later, when another type of music emerged from Detroit and Chicago. House music and techno music in the early to mid-1980s with artists like Frankie Knuckles. Again, the emphasis this time around is not on the snare, but it is on the kick drum. Electronic beats. And of course, it's no surprise that this style of mechanised, rhythmic, industrial, cold music comes from Chicago and Detroit. Because they're industrial cities, just like with soul music and Motown. So it would be of no surprise still 
that in the early 1980s, the cities in England that started to enjoy house and techno were the cities of the north. Manchester, the opening of a club called the Hacienda, which was founded by the members of New Order, was the first place in England to play Chicago House, to play Acid House and to play Detroit Techno. So, at the start of this, you know, I was talking about rave dancing in Limerick in the early 90s. Well, rave culture is a direct result of the northern soul culture of the 70s. The north of England, they already had this culture of dancing, shuffling your feet, staying up all night on drugs, going to a club and not needing drink. It laid dormant in the consciousness for about 10 years until Detroit Techno came along and Chicago Acid House and then it was reborn again in a new generation. So that rave dancing that I was doing in the early 90s, the feet shuffling shit, it's because of coal ships in the 1960s that accidentally came back with a bunch of obscure Chicago and Detroit soul music and that eventually turned into Lads in Limerick shuffling their feet, listening to the prodigy. But I tell you what I love the most about Northern Soul is that it is an art form that celebrates failure. The music of Northern Soul, they were failed records, they were test pressings, they were demos, they were one hit wonders. They were singles that were supposed to do well, sold 10 copies and then you're left with a warehouse of 10,000. And they failed and then found success in a new part of the world for very different reasons. And I, that, that's what draws me towards Northern Soul. I don't really listen to a lot of Northern Soul. I'd be much more of a commercialised Motown man. But I do enjoy this, the very healthy kind of attitude around failure that is present within that culture. And it's something for all of us to consider. Because from, from those failures came, you know, a hugely influential music. If you listen to the music of the Smiths, for instance, a Manchester band, you will hear the influence of Northern Soul. You hear uh, fucking the Happy Mondays, you know. There's Northern Soul all over that. Even Paul Weller, even though he's from London, his band, The Style Council, you know, listen to a song like Shout Shout to the Top by the Style Council. Northern Soul all over it. And then, of course, that Northern Soul culture, that, that which led to rave culture, started the Acid House movement in the UK. It started breakbeat hardcore. It started jungle music. The Prodigy can all trace their roots back, in my opinion, to Northern Soul music and the, that great celebration of failed music and failed records. Failure is a brilliant, brilliant thing. If I look at, we'll say, my own career, any any successful piece of work I have, it's because of several failures that have gone before. In my experience, you don't learn from success, you learn from failure. And there's only one real failure, to be honest, as far as I'm concerned. The only real failure is not doing something because you were scared of failing. That's the only actual failure. But if you try and put effort into something, a project, whatever, make a bollocks of it, then there is a success in that because you tried and you can learn from that in future. Like, I don't know, about six years ago, we got a pilot, a television pilot on Channel 4. And I was very young and I'd never written a half hour of TV before. So it was quite experimental. And I tried my best... And I, to be honest, I'm not particularly happy with that pilot looking back. And it didn't get commissioned. Now, it didn't get commissioned because the commissioner left for another channel. It wasn't because it was shit. But in my opinion, I'm not happy with the work. But when I look back at it, every fuck up that I made in the writing process, I have recouped several times over in experience. And... I'll never make those mistakes again because I made them once and it informs my creative process you know there'll be th that book I wrote there The Gospel According to Blind Boy that book is scarred with past failures 
and they've healed and grown stronger to turn into successes. So embrace failure in your own life is what I'd say to you. Embrace failure. There's nothing wrong with it. If, if you're involved in anything creative, you must recognise that failure is a necessary part of the creative process. It's a given. So, to use the cliche, feel the fear and do it anyway. But, don't look back. Don't look back with regrets. Don't look back with saying, I, I, I didn't do something because I was scared of trying and I was scared of failing. So I just didn't bother doing it. It's better to look back on a bunch of failed projects than to look back on nothing. Do you get me? Yort. So that was a 36 minute sojourn into the history of Northern Soul music. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I touched a little bit on house music and techno because I didn't want to get too deep into that. That's for another podcast and it's a whole different uh, it's a whole different type of history. How we said disco music went from post-disco went to electronic house and rave tunes via Italy as well that's another podcast which I'm going to get into at some point because I'm very passionate about that subject Um, we're going to take a small break now for an ad for an advert which you may or may not hear and as usual what I do each podcast is I'm going to leave a pause for an advert and I'm going to play my Spanish clay whistle, my ocarina. So here we go for the ocarina, which you may or may not hear, or you might hear an advert. It's a lucky dip. I'm going to place the ocarina away from the microphone because someone complained that it was too loud last week. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. That was the ocarina. I'd like to thank everybody at this point who has started contributing to this podcast's Patreon page. Um, last week I started a Patreon. You can find it at patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. And Patreon is if you enjoy the podcast and you're liking it. If you want, you can contribute a small amount of money to the podcast, whatever you want. And this helps me to keep it going because it is a lot of work. But if you don't want to contribute and you can't afford it, that's fine. That's no problem. The podcast isn't going to go anywhere. It's just nice to have patrons to see people appreciate it and to give me a euro a month or whatever the fuck. So thank you, everybody, for doing that. I'm going to bring back a feature of the podcast that I haven't visited in a couple of weeks now where I read out some of Donald Trump the most powerful man in the world I read out his tweets as your drunk limerick aunt who has had few too many West Coast coolers and the interesting thing about Trump's tweets I, I think he's legally not allowed to delete them now that he's president I think it's some type of obstruction of the public record if he as president deletes a tweet so he just has to leave them up so this is your drunk limerick aunt on a Saturday night, two in the morning. You foolishly called over to her house because you want to see how she's getting on. And she's been on the West Coast Coolie. 
Theresa May, don't focus on me, focus on the destructive radical Islamic terrorism that is taking place within the United Kingdom. We're doing just fine, you goal. The only people who don't like the tax cut bill are the people that don't understand it or the obstructionist Democrats that know how really good it is and do not want the credit and success to go to Republicans. Crooked Hillary Clinton is the worst and the biggest loser of all time, swear to God. She just can't stop, which is so good for the Republican Party. Hillary, get on with your life and give it another try in three years. You absolute goal, you fucking wagon. Big win today in the House for the GOP tax cuts and reform. 227 205. Zero Dems. They want to raise taxes much higher, but not for our military. Anyway, why would Kim Jong-un insult me by calling me old when I'd never call him short and fat? Oh well, I trust so hard to be his friend. And maybe someday that'll happen. So there was your weekly dose of Donald Trump's tweets as your drunk limerick aunt. Each week I like to also recommend a new musical album for you to listen to. Not songs, but an album, an entire body of work. Last week I recommended Blood on the Tracks by Bob Dylan. A fucking fantastic uh, album, which is literature, in my opinion. This week, you know, because most of the albums have been from the 60s and 70s. No, the reason being is that the 60s and 70s, that was the time for fucking albums, because singles weren't even really that much of a thing back then, you know. People went out and bought albums. They were important. It was a full body of work. It was a piece of art. You bought it on vinyl. It was massive. The artwork mattered. It was a full product. You'd listen to it for a year. You cared about it. It wasn't uh, disposable like it is now. But people are still coming out now with decent albums. So I recommend something contemporary. Um, There's an artist called Jameson. Spelt J-M-S-N. And he came out with an album in 2014 called The Blue Album. Which... Again, it's kind of, it's R&B orientated. If you don't like R&B music, you mightn't like it. But I fucking love the album because it mixes elements of trap music with beautiful string arrangements and great songwriting. And so Jameson, the blue album, J-M-S-N, you'll get it on Spotify. Lovely start to finish album, which I think you might enjoy if that's your cup of tea. It's pop, but kind of clever pop. So I'll answer some of the questions that you've been asking me on Twitter, at Rubber Bandits. few people asking, what's up with Mr. Chrome? Where is Mr. Chrome? Um, if you come to one of our gigs, a Rubber Bandits music gig, you'll see Mr. Chrome. Because what he likes doing is dancing and singing. That's his shtick, dancing and singing. And... He doesn't really tag out for the other stuff. He's not that interested. He's not interested in the internet stuff or anything like that. So if there's singing and dancing to be done, Mr. Chrome will be there. He spends most of his time in Malta where he's doing a PhD on the Maltese Falcon. Fionn Cleary asks, do you have any book recommendations? Um, I suppose I do. I don't do a massive amount of reading. Um... Because I'm just far too fucking busy, so I don't get to read as much as I'd like. I mainly read non-fiction because I can dip in and out of it, you know. But as regards giving hours and hours of my time to a novel, I just don't have that anymore. I'm too busy. I would recommend, um, I suppose you could call it a novella, because it's only about 50,000 words. It's called The Pigeon by Patrick Suskind, which... uh, it's a very interesting book. It's a very interesting book about a man and a pigeon. And Patrick Suskind is a phenomenal writer. I think he writes in German originally, but it translates quite well to English. I also enjoy his book Perfume. Um, Perfume, the story of a murderer, it's called. They made it into a film a few years back, actually. And it is the best adaptation from a book to a film that I've ever seen. Because I read the book first, and then I watched the film. And I felt it's it looked on screen exactly as it looked in my 
mind's eye at the time. But the thing with perfume, perfume is a book and it's all about smells. The major sense in that book is the olfactory system, which is great on paper, you know, the way he describes smells and stinks and nice smelling things and bad smelling things. So give Perfume by Patrick Suskind a crack. It's a longer book. And then if you want a shorter book, have a crack at the pigeon. He's a great writer. And buy my own book, The Gospel According to Blind Boy, my collection of short stories, which would have a bit of a Patrick Suskind influence in it, in how I described smells. Um, I just li- I like writing about smells because I think smell, smell triggers memory and emotions more than anything else. Smell number one, music second. But smell, sometimes when you get a smell on a very unconscious level, it can deeply emotionally take you back to a time that you associate that smell with. And it you can never quite put your finger on it, but you really feel the emotion. You really feel that sense of nostalgia. And smell is unique like that. And for me, that's why when I write a book, the goal for me when I'm writing, if I'm writing a short story, is I want you, the reader, to immerse yourself in that world as quickly as possible. I want you to forget that you are sitting in the room that you're sitting in now. And I want you to live in the world that I am painting for you. And I use detailed descriptions of smells to do this. I find it a very immersive experience. I'm going to begin writing book number two soon. Uh, I'm waiting for 2018 to happen. I just feel I can't start writing book two un- until 2017 is over. So once 2018 happens, I'm going to sit down and very calmly and slowly begin the process of flow where books come out of me. I'm not going to put myself under pressure and I'm going to try not to... Book number two will be slightly difficult. I'll tell you why. Because of feedback, right? And positive feedback can be just as dodgy as negative feedback as a creative person about a hundred percent of the public who've read the book have been very very happy with it and they love it and they enjoy it you'd have heard a bit of it at the first few podcasts I read out a couple of the short stories the reviews have been about 70% very positive as well I've had one or two negative reviews but my opinion with these negative reviews, they came from literary circles, right? And the literature world and the art world, they um, some of it is bollocks. Not all of it, some of it is bollocks. And the way that the art world and the literary world defend bollocks is by making it appear to be impenetrable and something that cannot be understood or appreciated by the average person on the street. It uses very solemn and serious language to prop up what is objectively harsh shit. When a person wears a bag on their head and acts and looks like a clown, because I'm a clown, when a clown walks into an art space or a literary space, it is very threatening to the guardians of that space. Because that exposes the fundamental absurdity that is being defended by solemnity. So, of course I'm going to get dismissive reviews from literary critics. Everyone who wasn't a literary critic, they didn't feel threatened, so they actually quite liked the book. And other artists, actually, yeah, I'm being unfair here now. Literary critics were not welcoming to my book, but actual artists, proponents of literature, did like the book. Kevin Barry, who's probably the best writer in the world today. If I said to anybody, Kevin Barry is the greatest writer in the world, a lot of people would go, yeah, I agree with that. Kevin Barry loved the book, so that's all I need to know. He's a proper artist. And the director of the Abbey Theatre, he loved the book. He's an artist. But regarding critics, there's something else at stake. And that goes for the literary world and the art world. They need to prop up their hallowed, elitist and religious space with uh, a very solemn and reverent attitude towards the art. Because if you strip that away and you start pulling your pants around your ankles or you start putting a bag in your head, 
then that whole system falls apart. But I'm quite, I'm quite happy to antagonise that system. I enjoy antagonising that system. And I, jo- I enjoy rattling cages. And I will continue to rattle cages of the literary world. Because I'm a socially engaged artist. And I, do, I don't want art to be out of the hands of anybody. I think that art should be appreciated by everybody regardless of your education. Regardless of how much you know about art. Art should be democratised bullshit of art being a, a out of reach and you you know you're not smart enough to get art that just services capitalism that just services high prices as far as I'm concerned now you might be listening and thinking blind boy are you not just defending yourself from negative criticism no I'm not um, negative criticism is one thing it's fine some people just don't like what you're doing and that's good and I would suggest if you're creating something if someone doesn't like your work Say to yourself, this person thinks my work is shit. In this person's world, my work is shit. And that's fine, because in another person's world, it's not shit. Most importantly, in my world, I like what I write, I like what I do. So I only have to impress myself. And in your world, you know, if, you, if you're an artist or if you're doing anything creative at all, the only person you have to impress is you. At the end of the day, that is all that matters. And if you do a good job at that, other people will, they'll get a horn off the authenticity of that. And then you'll have a, a successful work. But don't create for other people. It's, it's, it's a losing game. And don't, don't change what you do uh, as a response to someone else not liking your work. Now, that doesn't mean response to criticism. Sometimes people can make genuine, decent points about what you're doing. But... Try not to please other people with what you're doing. Only aim to please yourself. You must become responsible for your own... Your own kind of aesthetic autonomy. You know what I mean? Like I said, some of the reviews I got from the literary critics... They they were agenda-driven. It'd be like... It'd be like me reviewing a Tom Waits album... And spending the whole time complaining that... The guitars were a bit too gritty. Or complaining that he's not a very good singer. Or... Reviewing... The album that I gave to you last week, Blood on the Tracks by Bob Dylan. Listening to this album and choosing to complain that he's not as good a singer as Prince. Sure anyone can do that, lads. That's not decent criticism. That's critiquing art based on your own personal aesthetic boundaries. It's not about critiquing art on the terms of the artist or what the artist themselves wanted to convey. But having said that, writing the second book is going to be difficult. Because, first of all, I have to try and not take negative criticism on board. But even more difficult is not taking positive criticism on board. That's the tough one. I didn't write book number one by thinking about an audience. I wrote it in a state of flow. I was writing it for me. What is the book that I would like to read if I wasn't me? So for book two, I'm going to have that struggle. So I just have to try and get straight into flow and not think about other people. Like, what's the main example? There's two stories in my book that would not have been my favourite stories, but they are other people's favourite stories. There's a story called Ten Foot Henbending, which is uh, a very raw portrayal of what it's like to have an anxiety disorder, but is also fan fi- it's a fan fiction about the actor Sam Neill. Because why the fuck not? And this, for me would have been one of my least favourite stories but it seems to be the one that it's the favourite story from the people from the book or who read the book and that freaks me out because I'm going oh shit this story that I didn't think was the best is what other people like and then I say to myself do I even know what good is so I have to dismiss that thought because that's unhelpful I have one goal for book number two like I said I use smells a lot in book number one. So I want to get out of that sense, the sense of smell, and maybe try to describe things using different senses, either touch or sound, and see what that does. The cliche is visual descriptions. Visual descriptions are grand, but, you know, we see with our with our literal eye, with our lens. But with good writing, I think, 
what world can you paint using the other senses, the senses of touch and the senses of sound and the senses of smell, the senses of taste? These are the little curveballs that will draw a reader onto the page, in my opinion. Nelly15 asks, Are you ever going to have guests on the podcast, Blind Boy? Yes, I will, actually, because I'm just after launching the live Blind Boy podcast tour, which I didn't think would be that popular, but it turns out it is. We've got two dates in the Sugar Club in Dublin now that are sold out for March, looking at introducing a third. And there's a few other dates around the country that I'm going to announce. And for these live podcasts, I'm a bit nervous about them, to be honest. I am a bit nervous because this podcast is about the podcast hug. It's about the warm, relaxing space that I can give you. And I'm worried in a live setting, will I still be able to maintain that warm feeling? Maybe not, but I'll try my best. But I do think for these gigs, the smartest thing to do is to bring a guest on board rather than having me just talking to an audience. I don't know would that work in a live setting. You need to have interaction with the people in front of you. There needs to be a bit of give and take. There needs to be a bit more crack when it's live. So with uh, with guests, I think that would be a good idea. What I want to do regarding guests, I don't think I want famous people. What I'd like to do is every village or city or town in Ireland that I visit for a live podcast, I'm going to see about getting a local character on as the guest, a local historian or something, or a, a, a sports player or a, or a butcher, just interesting people. And what I'm going to start doing is that before I announce these gigs, I might ask ye, the listeners, to suggest people who might be good to have as interviewees on the podcast and I think that'd be a lot of crack and um, we'll cross the bridge when it comes to it if the interviews start affecting the podcast hug we'll find a way around it maybe I'll do one half of the podcast in my studio as a huggy podcast and then the second half can be the live part so it won't affect your hug you can listen to it on a, in a different environment or a different setting you know Jeff Carwin asks, What do you think will overtake Isle as the Earth's most precious resource, natural or artificial? My hope would be that we stop relying on kind of natural resources altogether. Uh, Unless it's wind or solar, unless it's completely renewable and it doesn't take from anything. Observing the world right now, I think what the people with money are treating as the natural resource is property. Countries like Qatar and Saudi Arabia and Dubai, they know that their oil is going. They're aware of this. So there's two things that they're doing. Dubai are basically turning their entire uh, country into a tourist resort. That's what they're doing. They want the longest bridge in the world. They want the highest building. That's international tourism. That's what they're doing once the oil goes. But they're also heavily investing in property in capital cities. In London, for instance, there's entire towers of flats, luxury flats that nobody will ever live in. And it's just somewhere for rich cons to put their money. So that appears to be the natural resource. I don't know, can you call property a natural resource? It's a resource. That's what's happening right now. Um, I don't think that we need to rely upon oil the way that industry would make us believe I don't think that at all I, I mean are you telling me you know I've got a fucking iPhone in my pocket and I can talk to somebody on a video link around the world in two seconds and we can't find an alternative fuel to oil bullshit I think uh, wind power and geothermal energy and you know hydrogen fuel cells that's something to look into I do believe that oil is horse shit and is just being used to prop up some rich people that are still left That's a particularly hot take. That's a boiling, boiling hot take that you are free to disagree with. To be honest, I'm in a a little bit of a rush. I'm in a small bit of a... Can you hear my cat screaming? No, she's gone quiet as soon as I uh, drew attention to her. Um, But I'm in a small bit of a rush this week because I have purchased a seaweed bat for a dear, dear friend... Um, in a spa in Limerick and I have to join them 
in a seaweed bath for a relaxing and a relaxing hour in a seaweed bath I hope it's fucking warm because I don't associate seaweed with being warm I associate seaweed with being fucking freezing out in a beach in Clare and getting a wallop across the face with a dead, a dead fucking octopus that's what I think about seaweed so I'll report back next week on whether the seaweed bath was a pleasurable and relaxing ecstatic experience I like to keep the podcast going for about an hour 15, an hour 20 minutes. I think that's a good time. But this week, lads, I'm going to wrap it up at around an hour, if that's all right with you. I'm going to have a a possible surprise next week. I'll say nothing. But um, look after yourselves. Look after yourselves. Christmas is coming up next week. Um, Look after your mental health. If if Christmas is is a a difficult time for you, okay, and I would say for fifty percent of people it is difficult. Not everybody gets along with their families. You're going to be going having Christmas dinner. You might have a brother or a sister or an aunt or an uncle that you don't just get along with. Let's just say there's a lot of history there, and some of their comments can be very triggering for you. They can make you feel insecure. They can make you feel angry. You can read into statements that they make you can read malice into their statements where it doesn't exist as a result of the pre-existing history that you have what I will say to you and give this a go give this a go because you will come out the stronger person at the other end if there is somebody in your family who you are you're anxious about Christmas dinner because they're going to be present you're ang- that anxiety is you're afraid of the emotion it brings up in yourself you're afraid of the the insecurity it brings up in you. The anger it brings up in you. It's not them, it's yours. First off, take ownership of that. And then this is the tough part. Try and have genuine compassion for that person. Even if they say something shitty to you. Even if they go back on their bullshit. In inverted commas, you know. Even if they have a few jars and they say something hurtful genuinely try and have in your heart compassion and love for them and when if they do something that is shitty try and see that behavior from a point of view of their heart rather than if, if even if their intention is to hurt you try and see their behavior from the point of view of their own heart and have compassion for that be cautious that how you express this compassion is not passive aggressiveness be cautious that you don't like um, I don't know your aunt is being an asshole or your brother is being a dickhead be cautious that you don't go say to yourself well I'm going to be an adult they can throw a tantrum if they like but I won't be an, I'm going to be an adult and I'm not going to speak to them that is passive aggression let them do their thing let them do it and try and feel love and compassion in your heart towards that person and understand, this is very important, when somebody in a public setting says something mean to you or makes a slight or tries to belittle you, even though you feel hurt and you feel insecurity, nobody around you thinks that. In fact, it's the person who made the shitty comment who looks like a dickhead, not you for receiving it. And the hurt and insecurity that that might bring up in you, that's yours. Hang on to that have compassion for yourself, have compassion for the aggressor, okay? If you do that successfully, actually try and do it, you will grow as a human being, that will raise your self-esteem, that will raise your self-confidence and that will improve your own personal mental health journey. Everyone has their problems, lads, and a lot of people express their own hurt by being aggressive to other people. So don't you be that person. And if someone else is that person to you, be compassionate around it, okay? And do that for yourself. Do it for you. It also benefits them, but mostly that benefits you. Okay, Yort, have a lovely, pleasurable Christmas, and I'm going to talk to you next week. Um, Go on to the Patreon, patreon.com, the Blind Boy Podcast, if you want to give a few quid. If not, it doesn't matter. 
try and buy the book The Gospel According to Blind Boy let's not forget this podcast is still a promotional tool for me to sell that book until Christmas is finished and then I can go on to writing the second one buy the book if you want if you don't want to that's fine and recommend the podcast to a friend uh, leave a nice review of the podcast and subscribe to it and uh, that's all I can say I'm going to go and have a dip in a seaweed bath with a dear friend I might report to you next week if it's uh, pleasurable go in peace lads go in peace have a lovely week I'm going to be back same time next week Eeyore. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.